Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting, as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all enjoying reading, listening, and uh, today is another beautiful day, another rotation of the earth, uh, sitting in isolation. I am very excited because a, a lot of my audience members have started to reach out to me with some suggested people, so I'm, I feel really happy to be able to provide a service for my audience members, and quite a few people have reached out to me like, hey, can you reach out to some of my some of my heroes and some people have been giving me a list. So today I'm really excited to knock off the top of the list here. I'm very lucky to have Alan Edelman. He is a lighting designer out of New York City. He was very highly requested. So I'm really excited to sit down and have a conversation with Alan so that you guys can all listen to his unique philosophies and kind of some of the things that he's foretold that have come true in the industry. So thank you so much for taking an hour to sit down with me, Alan. I really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Alan, I'm especially excited to talk to you because I know that when I came up through theater, I used to see signs in the theater that said, uh, painting is art, theater is art, television is furniture. And it, there used to be a large barrier between theater and video and television. And as we progress, those walls seem to have all but completely disappeared. And from what I've heard, you're one of the person who kind of helped break down those walls. Can you kind of fill us in on how that came to be? Um, sure, Chris. The, uh, you know, for the people who know who I am and what my history is, you know, I came out of the theater. I was a theater student. I was born and, you know, I was basically a theater kid. But at some point in the in the 70s, which was back in the days of, you know, when portable portable video was the, um, the Sony Portapack, which looked like a, you know, it was a tape recorder that basically, mm -hmm. a real mm -hmm. tape recorder that you used to wear around your shoulder with a, with a camera that was, you know, that weighed 30 pounds. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, from, from early on, I felt it was important to make records of theatrical shows, which is the only reason that I got involved in television to begin with. You know, I was a theater kid, I used to get terribly depressed when my shows were over because they were, you know, this thing that we poured our hearts into was done and then it was gone. So I, I embraced television as an opportunity to make a record of theatrical events. So when I went to grad school, which I decided to go to grad school at the University of Wisconsin with Gil Hemsley, um, you know, one of the reasons I decided to go there, you know, I had a choice, I'd go there, I could go, I, I was accepted at Carnegie Mellon, I was accepted at Yale, but I decided that working with Gilbert in Wisconsin had the advantage of the fact that WHA, which was the local PBS television station in Wisconsin, 
their flagship station was at was in the same building as the theater department in Wisconsin. And what I did, what you know, during the time that I was in Wisconsin, you know, with certainly with Gilbert's support, um, we started doing live simulcasts of the um, uh, opera program productions uh, with Carlos Moser in the opera department. So we and we were doing these before the Met did La Boheme which was their first broadcast from the Metropolitan Opera House. Actually, people from the Met, who Gilbert knew because he was a designer at the Met, came out to Wisconsin to see what we were doing before they did what they did. So when I got out of school, I decided to, um, you know, I was continuing my theatrical career. I was working with Beverly Emmons. I worked with David Hersey on the uh, original production of Merrily We Roll Along on Broadway. But I decided I had an opportunity to work with Fiorentino Associates and Merrill Fiorentino Associates and uh, I got involved with them specifically because I had a feeling that the collaboration between television and the theater was going to accelerate. And uh, certainly that did happen in, uh, in the 80s when HBO went online, you know, they were looking for original material and one of the things that they decided was that you know they were going to shoot existing shows and so i used to call it off-broadway television you know all of a sudden in the middle 80s we started shooting we were shooting shows like every month you know hbo would be doing something and they would or showtime would be doing something and i was right at that point where that was happening and i embraced that and my career has been built on that ever since so you know now we find ourselves 40 years later, you know, the relationship between theater and television has evolved. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I've waited my entire career for the moment when <laughs> the Broadway production community embraces theater as a sort of collaboration like, like they do in, at, you know, like it's done in, in Great Britain at the National Theater. Everything that's done at the National Theater is pretty much recorded. It's part of their deal. Mm -hmm. So uh, that model hasn't totally been embraced yet in the United States. I'm wait, I've been waiting for that my entire career. <laughs> I can only imagine that you encountered quite a bit of resistance at the beginning because of the walls between the two. It wasn't so much resistance, it was apathy. <laughs> you know, the resistance, well, the resistance <laughs> exists because um, it, it, it really is uh, it has to do with the finances. It costs money to do these things. So the question is, who pays for it? How does it get paid for? But, you know, early on, you know, there, there really was a, um, a barrier between the theater community and the television community. Uh, the, theater, the theater community wasn't really ready to embrace television. You know, the quality of video in those days was nowhere near the quality that we can do now. I think it was just an aesthetic issue that, uh, that you know, the theater is, is really for a live audience. And I mm -hmm. never doubt that. I, I, I would never say that something that a theatrical production that we capture uh, for, um, for a digital capture is ever going to necessarily be the same experience as somebody experiences in the theater with a live, uh, with a live audience and, a li and live actors on stage. Mm -hmm. However, that for the folks who can't necessarily make it to the theater or can't afford to go to the theater, there is value in having that opportunity. You know, you can just hear stories on PBS and great performances of people who have been inspired by these shows who've come from all over America who've been inspired to continue working the theater because of what they've seen on television. 
Yeah, nowadays we uh without with, without the opportunity to even go to shows, we don't have any other opportunity. I would imagine there's a lot of people who are so thankful that they have recorded their theatrical performances because that's the only way they can express their art right now. Well, that's a good point. And and I've thought about that and it, it'll be interesting to see if what's going on now impacts what happens after. You know, they there certainly have been some very wonderful captures of Broadway shows. The Hamilton capture that was done was done very well. You know, their uh, NBC, uh, NBC has, you know, uh, in their trying to do their live theatrical shows, their series of live theatrical shows have rekindled a certain amount of interest in, in actually having theatrical work being done on television. You know, mm -hmm. there, there was a, uh, a pause where that really wasn't happening, but now there now there's much more opportunity it seems for people to reconsider that and to think of live theater as something that actually has uh, that that can be communicated in a television way. The uh, uh, the production of Newsies that was done I didn't I didn't work on the production of Newsies I thought that was spectacular. Now that was actually shown eventually I'm sure Disney will show that on. Uh, it'll it'll appear. I'm not sure. It might even actually be on the Disney on the new uh, the Disney new Plus. It could be. I'm not sure about that. But um, I saw it in the theater and it was fantastic. You know, they did a great job on it. And uh, those kind of captures and that was captured right on stage. It was done in Los Angeles. You know, it was totally done on stage um, with a live audience and everything. If totally. I remember. You know, they did, they probably did, um, I was there for part of it. They, uh, they certainly did two, two captures with a live audience. And I think they spent four days shooting without an audience. I'm not sure mm -hmm. about that, but, uh, but it was done in a beautiful way. You know, the director, mm -hmm. the director uh, came out of doing commercials of strong theatrical background, shoots a lot of stage commercials in, in the UK and his partner in business is his DP. So they're a very great team and the two of them together did an excellent job. But anyway, I would imagine it was, uh, it was very beneficial for you to be at the forefront of that one because it only would take a matter of time for people to realize that they can only provide a show for 2000 people at a time in a theater. But once the show's over, the, you can open that, open your audience up to millions of people. Well, Disney, you know, Disney's was surprised by how popular Newsies was. Like the, the they did a limited theatrical release of Newsies, and it was a huge hit to the point where they actually came back and they re-released it again into the theaters because it was so popular the first time around. So it'll be very interesting to see if Disney actually, you know, Disney has a whole stable of shows. It'll be interesting to see if Disney, uh, you know, looks at the success of of that digital capture of Newsies and, and decides to capture the rest of their shows. Mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're still doing live action and, you know, um, you know, they're doing different things with their properties, but capturing the stage show is uh, turned out to be a surprise for them. And, uh, you know, they certainly have the, re the resources to do it properly. They spent, uh, they spent a lot of money on doing Newsies. They did, they did a beautiful job. So we'll see if that continues. I'm seeing all the other networks starting to pick it up too. It seems like everybody has a live action of something, uh, whether it be cats or hairspray or something. They're all trying to kind of 
gain on that, uh, cash in on that momentum? Well, they're showing, you know, in this COVID period, you know, they're showing all everything that they have. People, you know, <laughs> you know you can, if you go to, if you if you subscribe to Broadway HD, which is an on um, for people who don't know what it is, it's an online streaming library, and they have, you know, they have an incredible selection of stuff. You know, there's a lot of a lot of shows that I've done on Broadway are are exist on the Broadway HD library. They've they've accumulated a lot of stuff from from the United States, from great performances and also from what's gone on in Europe, um, opera, you know, dance, theater. It's a really wonderful collection. Um, and, uh, you know, they're committed to it. Um, uh, you know, I'm sure, you know, I don't know what their economics are or how, or how much money they're made, but they've, they, they've made a strong commitment to that archive. And I mm -hmm. applaud them for that because uh, that's exactly what should happen because you know, I've been the life I've been the lighting consultant for Life from Lincoln Center since 1978. 19, excuse me, 1998. Impressive. You know the uh, Life from Lincoln Center archive. You know there are there are performances of Luciana Pavarotti and Beverly Sills when they were in their prime. You know th there are wonderful things that that exist on tape. Now who knows if anyone's ever going to see them because of the residual rights and renegotiating with the unions and whatever, but. But the archive exists, and for people to be able to look at that in the future, I think is really important. There had to be a fairly quick progression from the quality of video that you require for archive to the quality of video that you need to actually sell it as a product. I'd imagine you got to watch that progress rather quickly. You know, every Broadway show is recorded. Uh, right. There's an archive uh, at, the, at the New York Public Library at, uh, at Lincoln Center there is a um, there there is a there, there is a special division that is, that just has all these archive recordings and they do them with two cameras and you know they do them as well as they can you know they you know the, the, there is a director who comes in and prepares and they and they try and cover it as best as they can and it exists not everybody nobody you can't just walk in off the street and ask to see one of these tapes but you can make a res you know if you're at all involved in the performing arts or have anything to do with the performing arts you can make a reservation and you can come in and make a, an appointment to come and see one of these to see any of these historical shows and i also think that that's fantastic that wasn't happening in 19 you know 75 it's just a great resource for people and then as soon as people realized that the archive photos were vital and necessary i would imagine it was a quick progression of like hey maybe we can sell some of these things to put them on dvd and sell them after the show or wait till the well, run's over yeah the, the, there's a whole thing with the unions about that you know every every show that's shot oh, that's on, tricky huh well it's all like going back to the well every time you know the thing that separates you know the national theater there you know I, I don't know this for a fact but i would imagine that when people sign on to do a show at the national theater and the unions at the National Theater and all that there, there's a there's a there's set in stone in terms of what those deals are. And and so they can, you know, they do them as economically as they can, I'm sure, but it's established. It's similar to like at the Metropolitan Opera House. You know, the Met records, you know, they don't record all of their shows, but they do 10 or 11 operas a year. And those deals are in place, you know, Peter Gelb and the management there knows what that is. They can budget for it. But 
for a producer to go in and try and shoot a Broadway show, you have to negotiate with the artist, you have to negotiate with the writer, you have to negotiate with the choreographer, you have, and there were all these negotiations all are mm -hmm. unique negotiations. So it's very difficult. It is very difficult. Yeah, um, there's a big difference between the two camera archive shoot and the 16 camera professional shoot with, with well, the, uh, it's far more imposing. Well, the reason is because there is, because, because the, the, the format and the, and the deal for the two camera archive shoot are in the contracts. They right. actually have been, you know, all the unions have agreed to it and it exists. You know, whatever payments are made, I'm, I'm not sure if there's any payment made, but whatever it is, it's a done deal. They know exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. So, um, but they can't show it commercially. You know? Right. Well, you know, one of the only shows that I worked on um, well, there have been a couple of them, but um, when we did Memphis, you know, Memphis was produced on Broadway and part of the Memphis deal was that it was going to be shot for television. It was part of the deal. It was in their contracts. The Broadway actors, it was done. And, you know, during the time that it was during the first run, before anybody of the original cast had left, we went in and we shot this thing. And, um, you know, everybody was nervous about it. Everybody thinks that if you show this thing while the, while the show is still running, it's going to kill ticket sales. Memphis, we made this, uh, it was a really good quality uh, capture. It was edited and they used to sell it in the lobby and they made money selling this thing in the lobby. And eventually it was seen on PBS. But, um, you know, there's always been this fear that if, that if, if a show gets shown while it's still in its theatrical release, that it's going to kill, especially the national tours, because that's really where the money's made on Broadway. The money's not really made in New York. The money is made on the national tours is where, the, is where they, uh, everybody really makes the real money. Mm -hmm. And there, the fear is always that, the, that a video property is going to kill the national tours. But you know, you look at, a, you look at a show like, um, like Chicago, now, Chicago, granted, it wasn't a television capture, but the movie increased ticket sales. You know, it's Chicago's, so paradoxical, but it's true. Chicago's still running. Yeah. Um, it didn't hurt it at all. You know, if the show's good, of course, the show has to be good. Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, I've always felt that, uh, that every first-run Broadway show should be captured. That's always been my feeling. And, you know, while the cast is there, like they did Hamilton, they, they captured Hamilton right before key members, including um, uh, Lin-Manuel, right before they left the cast, because they wanted to capture it when it was still in its absolute pristine first run shape. And I applaud that, because that's mm -hmm. what we should do, because that's for posterity. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the, those are the words of a visionary right there. I, uh, I would imagine there was a lot of people that disagreed with you, but you're like, no, I, I'm telling you, it doesn't make sense, but it's true. The, uh, if even people would just get a snippet of the show in its full glory on a, on a tiny little monitor, that's not going to stop them from coming to see the, full, the show in its full glory. Well, the, I think the theater folks, you know, they resisted it initially, you know, but mm -hmm. Disney paid $75 million for that <laughs> show. You know, the, uh, it was produced, it was, you know, it, it wasn't done by an outside production company. The Hamilton production team did it themselves. The general managers and, you know, Hamilton, they, they did it themselves and then they marketed it and they were going to hold on to it. 
But because of this COVID situation, they decided that they were going to, um, you know, let, let it loose. And Disney definitely made them a great offer, that's for sure. <laughs> Disney has done quite well broadcasting their theater shows. At, uh... Well, this new, you know, Disney's got this new subscription channel. Right. So, you know, Hamilton is now, they are, Hamilton is the, is the premier sales tool for this new Disney channel. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it's doing very well. Yeah, I think they just realized that, you know, especially right now, that it's almost, I want to say it's almost illegal to generate new content right now because we can't be filming. But anything that's sitting there archived right now, let, let, hey, let's get that out there. Let's, let's entertain the masses while they sit in their houses. Yeah, there was, there's, a lot of, there, there's a lot of stuff that's been shot in the UK that we're seeing. Um, and... Uh, you know, stuff that's out there, you know, and it's interesting because even if it, even if it's just record stuff, you know, even mm-hmm. if it's just, you know, it's all over the place. Like if, even if it's somebody, a, a single camera, you know, in an audience shooting a part of a show, it's, you know, you can find all this stuff. It's all over YouTube. It's everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, I was just about to go and let's say, let's take this to the next level. Cause I come from the rock and roll world where we have a handful of holdouts that just refuse to let people film their shows. But the vast majority of people in the rock and roll industry, they've, they've just given up. They, they can't control it anymore. People are going to record the show. Would you ever embrace that in the Broadway world? Well, I don't know. It's not for me to say. You know, but I'm sure Broadway has the Van Morrisons you know, who <laughs> absolutely refuse to acknowledge that television even exists. You know, go try and find how many Van Morrison you know, appearances on television you can find. You, know, mm-hmm. you can probably count them on one hand over the last 40 years. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, listen, the, it, it, it's never going to replace the theatrical experience. You know, again, well, I'm, I'm, I come from it. I'm not saying that television is art. You know, I, I, you know, there are people who want to talk about television as art. I don't consider television to necessarily be art in itself, although people can use it in an artistic way. But this isn't art. This is, this is pure craft. We are capturing something that's been created for a different medium and we're doing our best to make it translate to this medium in a way that people can get a sense of what it was like to be there in the audience and what this piece is about and that's what we do and we do it as best as we can and 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 some can be done better than others but i think they should all be done because having that record is it's like it's a library you know and Mm -hmm. uh, and we have to make and I think it's an opportunity to build this incredible library of, of the talent of our times for future generations to see. So knowing what we know now, do you think it's starting to change the way people light things? Because there's a, there's a big difference between lighting just for the human eye and the 2,000 people in the theater as opposed to lighting for television. Well, we could have a whole conversation just about that. You know, when I started, you know, my thesis was on that. My, my master's thesis, my MFA master's thesis at the University of Wisconsin was for uh, how to do live television simulcasts. That's what it was on. And, you know, back in 1975, you know, there weren't chip cameras. Everything was tubes. You know, it was, right. a, whole, it was a whole different world. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't make a decent picture. You know, most cameras could not make a decent picture unless it had like an 80 foot candles or, you know, of light. And even then the camera was wide open, which was not recording at its optimal levels. So, you know, it was much more difficult 
to try and massage a stage show so that a television camera can shoot it and have it look decent. That doesn't mean that you can't light a stage show in a way that it looks good on stage and also looks good for the camera, because you certainly can. Even back then, you could. But there are certain compromises that have to be made, you know. Um, so the real question is, you know, how much are you willing to compromise? And that's, mm. and that's a conversation between television people and theater people. You know, I've had pretty good success in my career in terms of making these translations, working closely with the theater folks, because that's where my heart is, and people being very supportive of it and being happy with what's come out. And I don't think the, I don't think the audience has necessarily suffered. There have been ones that have been harder than others. You know, <clears throat> when we did Death of a Salesman on Broadway with Brian Dennehy, that production, which we shot for great performances. I believe it was for great performances. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could be wrong about that. I'd have to look that up. Um, the, uh, you know, that show required a lot of relighting. I actually had to bring in 24 Verilites and hang 24 VL5s and work on that show. Um, these days, you know, that was back in the, I, I don't remember the exact date of that. I think that was in the 90s. You mm-hmm. know, before automated lighting actually made its way into Broadway. You know, uh, you work in rock and roll, automated lighting was premiered in rock and roll and was, has still been featured in rock and roll and has been the driving force behind development in that, in that world um, mm-hmm. for the most part. Um, rock and roll and club design is where the money is for those, uh, for those vendors, as you know. Yep. Uh, the, uh, these days, you know, there are shows now being lit on Broadway. You know, King Kong was lit with not one conventional light. You know, everything was automated or an LED color changer leak or whatever, an ellipsoidal. Mm-hmm. Um, so these days, if you're going to go in and try and capture a television show, A, the cameras are so much better. You know, the 4K chip cameras are so sensitive and they can handle so much wider a contrast range than they used to be able to, you know, with that compression right. that they use. You know, and... You know, you, you walk into a you walk into a music, especially a musical, you know, and there's always a couple of hundred automated lights hanging these days. So, right. so having to bring in more equipment or doing that stuff is not, you know, I, I haven't had to bring in other than to do maybe some audience lighting. I haven't had to bring any equipment into into doing a stage capture in years because there's always enough there. Actually, yeah. I'd like to talk about that. When was the first time that you decided, like, hey, you guys, so? If we're going to make this spectacular, we have to light the whole audience. Because at first, I would imagine you guys didn't have to affect the audience at all. But then you realize that you're just shooting a, a giant black room. So, well, so eventually, somebody had to decide, like, hey, let's light the whole audience so you can see the amount of people and the smiles on their faces. That's always a question, you know, because that... See, when I, when I, when I do a stage capture, I want to get started right away. Because there's only a limited amount of time. I usually, I usually request two days in advance to work on certainly a musical. I will always request mm-hmm. two days before the day that they bring the cameras in. And I want to get started right away. If I have to bring in equipment and we have to take time to hang equipment and focus equipment, I'm taking time away from myself. So because mm-hmm. that time has to come out of the same two days. And the loadings happen during, you know, if we, if we do it on a Tuesday or do it on a Thursday or a Friday before their evening show. So I only get eight hours if I'm lucky. So I'll always ask that question. I don't, I don't insist that anybody like the audience, but if it's usually a director or a producer that wants to see a little bit of the house. So, 
So we would do that in a simplest we do that in the simplest possible way usually. You know, unless you're doing some big network extravaganza where they might come in and, and invest a lot of time and a lot of money. But I'm talking about doing great performances, Broadway HD, those kind of those kind of shows where we're coming in and trying to work with what's there and do the best we can and 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 really capture what's on stage. You know, seeing the house is icing on the cake. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we'll, we'll try and do it. Maybe we can repurpose a couple of lights that are already in the rig, which is what I hoped, which is, you know, with all these automated lights, very often at the mm -hmm. end of the show, some of the lights can be repurposed so that we can do a little bit of audience lighting. Every show is unique in that sense. When you're in beautiful rooms, like say the Fox or the Beacon, do you try to default to try and do your very best to light the, the architecture and the whole room and all the upspires and the canopies and... Yeah, if you're going into a room like that, well, first of all, if you're going into a room like that, then we're doing, um, you know, then we're doing a music special or we're doing something else, which I also do. You know, I don't just mm -hmm. do theatrical stage. You know, listen, I would, I would, I'd be broke if I just did stage captures. They come across. <laughs> and we're lucky. We're lucky when they come across. You know, most of the theater these days is doing comedy shows for Netflix, and um, you know, I do quite a few music shows. Um, but if we're going into an architecture, if, if we're doing if we're doing one of those shows, then I would spend half the budget's going to be spent on lighting the house. Mm -hmm. And it's really a question of how much we, how much resources we want to spend on that. But you could easily spend uh, time and rigging uh, just doing just doing that part of it. Uh, going to the topic of comedy, I would imagine that they were probably the last ones to fully embrace the the televised aspect of their show because it's so they're so accustomed to being in a small intimate venue and trying to get laughs from just the hundred people in their immediate circle but there's been uh, now that's you can't make money on that well you know comedy you know comedy central actually had a huge impact on the comedy world you know before comedy I remember central, before comedy central you know the Comics were making a living playing in small clubs and touring and doing whatever they could do. Comedy Central actually put all these, started to put all these comics on television regularly and created, right. a, created a whole industry that now is, is, you know, blossomed. You know, Netflix, you know, you know I look at my credit list and I, 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 probably half the shows that I did last year were comedy specials for Netflix or HBO, not so much for Comedy Central for myself, but, you know, it's been the best thing that's ever happened to comics. You know, they're making, I agree. Uh, Netflix is paying very, you know, Netflix has driven up the, the fees for people, you know, it, the budgets have gone up for, for doing these things. Um, although now there, there's a lot of pressure now, but, you know, Netflix over the last couple of years, you know, Netflix was shooting comedy shows like every week, pretty much, or every other week, but there are shows happening constantly. It was a huge part of their business in terms of expanding their business. Some of the mega comedians now, they're actually spending quite a bit on their production value too. Even though they're going to just be talking for you know an hour, they really want those big intros and outros. And they're spending, yeah. I've, I've been hearing the stories of comedians with a truck and a half worth of stuff just, to, just for their intro. Well, it's gone around, you know, I've done the Chappelle, I, I've been doing the Chappelle shows because um, I did his original series. I, I know Dave from back when we did the original series. And, 
you know, they pay Dave Chappelle a lot of money. And then mm -hmm. it's up to Dave Chappelle. It's really up to Dave Chappelle at that point to decide how big a show he wants, because that's how basically it's been working. And, you know, when we shot, when we shot Equanimity, we shot six shows. Now that's unheard of. No comedy special shoots six shows for a one, one hour special, except Dave Chappelle. <laughs> he wants to, you know, he wants to have an opportunity to, to warm up and he wants to pick the best show and he is willing to pay for it, you know, but when you're getting paid that kind of big bucks that Netflix is paying for those comics, um, you know, that's Dave Chappelle's choice, but to put mm -hmm. a whole crew up, you know, to load in a show and to put a whole crew up for six, for six tapings. We were there, you know, we were on site for a week. That's quite a, you know, that's, yeah. that's quite a commitment. Wow. You know, so a lot I'm, of the comedians nowadays, it's not just them doing stand-up. They've got so many additional things where they're going to need. Uh, there's a lot of uh, mus musical comedians too. I would imagine that adds a whole nother aspect to your job where you actually have to have mood lighting. That does. It's not just somebody walking back and forth on the stage. We did... Um, Seinfeld made a deal with Seinfeld also made a deal with Netflix. So Seinfeld, uh, uh, Jerry, you know, he does, he, he, he does, well, not right now, but he had been doing shows regularly at the beacon in New York, mm -hmm. like every month or two, you know, Seinfeld would come back and do a couple of days at the beacon. Uh, so he decided he wanted to shoot that show. So we shot, we, you know, we came in to shoot the Chappelle show and uh, I'm sorry, we came in to shoot the Seinfeld show and, you know, Seinfeld wanted a band to play him on. That's what he wanted. He doesn't okay. normally do that. He doesn't normally do that in his regular show at the Beacon. But for this television special, he wanted a band to play him on. So, you know, so Jerry invested um, in the cost of building a moving band cart that had probably I don't know exactly how many musicians, but probably had at least sixteen musicians on it. It was a sizable band cart. It was fifty feet wide, and uh, a whole basically set that was designed about this moving band cart with a curtain that came down, which was basically the background for the show once the show started. Now, this band in the television show, you see it for literally five seconds because it starts <laughs> with him jumping out of a helicopter. If you've seen the show, he jumps out of the helicopter into the East River. He comes up in a wetsuit. He comes backstage, takes off the wetsuit, and then he runs on stage. So he runs on stage. And in that running on stage, the band cart is already has moved upstage and the curtain is coming down. Now that band cart probably cost Jerry, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to build that band cart for five seconds, less than five seconds of television time. But that's a choice. But yeah. you know, that's his choice, you know, I'm sure it comes out of whatever fee he gets from Netflix. You know what I mean? It's, it's that's, um, but not every comic can afford that. You know, not every, not every comic can afford what Dave Chappelle and Jerry Seinfeld can afford. I'm sure that uh, more money has been spent on five seconds of airtime, but that is, those are the decisions that we have to make. Jerry had to go to somebody and say, no, it is but, worth those five also, seconds. But half the lighting rig, half the lighting rig was probably lighting that band because that band played 20 <laughs> minutes. That band played 20 minutes before Jerry came out. You know, he was, they were like the warm-up act. There was no warm-up comic. It was, it was basically, so, you know, but Jerry was willing to do that because, you know, he's old school, you know, you know, Jerry Seinfeld, 
he comes from the he comes from what I call the Johnny Carson school of comedy. You know, Jerry's right. when it really comes down to it, all he wants to do is perform in front of a curtain. And but he but but you know, but those shows always had the band play on. And you know, that's what he wanted. And he got it. <laughs> I, would, I would say half the resources of the show, if not more than half the resources of the show, went into lighting that band. And and building the band cart and a surround for the band and the whole thing. That's amazing. A lot of, a lot of effort went into that band cart. We've come a long way from the uh, the one-two camera archive shoot. And to... the to move the band cart. <laughs> that was like six or eight guys just to move the band cart. Anyway, done with the band cart. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure. At the end of the day, they they wanted to negotiate your per diem too, and they're like, "You just spent twenty thousand dollars on a band cart. You want to negotiate my per diem?" Yeah. They spent more than that on the but by the time you included the lighting and the sound sound at the <laughs> well those guys had to be mic'd you know what i mean by the time you figured it all out it was, oh yeah i don't even want to guess how much it was but it wasn't it wasn't twenty thousand dollars it was a lot more than that ah, <laughs> I, I do love seeing how extravagant we get sometimes over some of the weirdest things uh, i'm sure that uh, i'm sure there was some bean counter at the end of that show going what did we do well but Jeff, uh Jerry's accountant. But yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that <laughs> whatever Jerry wants, Jerry gets. So you made a mention of things ending up on YouTube. Do you find that you're having to just light everything now, just assuming that it's going to end up on YouTube, whether professionally or illegally? I don't think about. I wouldn't. The, 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 well, I, I'm sure that. The reality is that everything could end up on YouTube, but I don't, I don't take it into consideration. You know, people are watching things on their phones. Right. The reality is that television is now a phone medium and people right. watch things on their phones. And so, you know, I think about that every now and then, you know, listen, you, you're, you're lighting this stuff and you're trying to make the pictures look as good as possible. And if you, if you, if you have a good looking picture, it's going to look good on your phone. It's going to look good on your TV at home, you know, a good picture is a good picture. You know, we can talk about what makes up a good picture, but that's ultimately what our job is, is to make good pictures. Mm -hmm. You know, to work, to work with the set designers, to work with all the other designers, to work with the DPs, to work with the director and try and, and try and come up with something that looks handsome, tells the story, which is mm -hmm. my job. I have a hard time deciding sometimes when it's time to make the pretty pictures that match the content or if it is the contrast of the pretty pictures as opposed to an, an asymmetrical look that's just a little bit off to create some more emotions. I guess what I'm asking is when do you, when do you choose to follow the rules and make pretty pictures and when do you choose to break the rules, create awkward, uncomfortable emotion? Well, you know, it depends on what you're lighting. You know, mm -hmm. if you're lighting a play or if you're lighting a stand-up comic, you know, your, your job is not to upstage the comic. You know, a, a lot of comics really don't want anything. They really were happy performing in front of a brick wall because, you know, you know, Jerry, you know, Jerry Seinfeld is an example. You know, he wants to perform in front of a curtain. He doesn't want anything, he doesn't want anything detracting from simple, straightforward telling of his story, whatever story he's telling. Now, granted, on some comedy shows, we, we have, you know, there, there's eye candy and there's, there's lighting, there's, you know, there's beams of lights, there are all these things that we do, but, you know, you're not going to start doing anything that's going to, um, 
you know, once you settle into the look for a show like that, you're in it. So, uh, which is different than doing a music show, which is, you know, mm -hmm. as you know, in terms of rock and roll, that's a whole different environment. You know, if you, took the, if you took all the fancy lighting and you took all the special effects away from the rock and roll band, what's left? And that's always a good question. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing that's going on these days when you see these performances happening from home is you realize who the really good musicians are and the ones who can, can be at home in their living room and just totally captivate you just by playing their music. And I really appreciate that because, you know, that's really what it's about. And, you know, an example is, you know, the late night hosts, you know, Jimmy Fallon and, and Colbert. You know, they're all doing their stuff from home. You know, I never really, I never watched the Fallon show because I was not a big Fallon fan. But you know what? I actually like watching his show from home because it feels more real. He's there with his wife. He's there with his kids. There's no mm -hmm. fancy production numbers. There's no play-ons. There's none of this stuff. It's just Jimmy Fallon being real Jimmy Fallon at home. Yeah. And I actually think it's a better show. That's just my own feeling about it. My wife agrees with you. Uh, yeah. She she yeah. really enjoys it, especially when the wife comes in and the, the children interrupt him. It, it's very real. Right. You know, and music performance is the same way. You know, there's something about seeing music, you know, seeing people performing in their environment that makes it more real. So whatever. I'm not trying to disparage the big rock and roll shows. But, uh, <laughs> you know, someone like Dave Matthews, who is capable of doing a huge, a huge rock and roll you know, crazy event. Someone like, or someone like Bruce Springsteen. Mm -hmm. You know, these guys are folk singers. And you right. know what? You can put them behind, you can put them, just give them a guitar, put them behind a microphone and put them in front of a, a, a wall. And these guys can just blow you away because at heart, they're folk singers and they know how to connect to an audience and they know how that relationship works. And that's what I'm really mm -hmm. interested in. And I love it when I see that because it really hits home. In these big extravaganzas, you know, you lose that. You know, you, it's hard. Well, I shouldn't say you lose it, but it's a different relationship. It's not the same. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so one of the things you uh, lightly touched upon was that when you do a television show or a, a television production, you have far more spoons in the soup, if you will. So if you're doing a theater performance, you have the lighting designer, and that is the chief. That's the person who's in charge of the entire aesthetic of the show. But once you go into television, you've got a DP, you've got a gaffer, you've got so many more people who have input. Do you like that? Does you think that adds to the benefit of the show? The DP thing, you know, television's a hybrid. You know, the thing that the thing that always, you know, television up till 10 years ago, you know, the thing that was very different about television is that, you know, the director in a television show on a multi-camera television show is really, really picking the shots so right. in a sense they really are the dp in that regard because they are picking the shots and the lighting designer is basically the lighting designer what, what's happened once we got into this 4k world which was pretty much promoted heavily by netflix because they that was part of their you know when they rolled out that was part of their thing that it's all 4k so the the style of shooting in 4k which are basically filmed this, they're, they're digital film cameras, really. And they're the same cameras that people use to make feature films. All of a sudden, into the mix of what had been multi-camera television, which we've been doing for years and years and years. Now, in order to deal with this new style of working, now that we, now 
a director of photography, a film director of photography, or a digital cinema director of photography has entered into the mix. So now there's a new collaboration, because up until that point, the lighting, the lighting designers really were taking on, totally taking on that function with the director. If you had a good relationship with the director, the two of you together were basically creating this compromised hybrid situation. You know, I work with a lot of DPs now shooting, especially shooting these Netflix shows and the collaboration, you know, I tend to work with a lot of the similar people all the time and we've developed a language now and the DPs pretty much let me light the show and we talk about it and the, you know, the DPs are focused on camera positions, making sure they have the right hardware and working with the director to get the shots that the director wants, dollies, you know, steady cams, making sure that all that's in place, making sure the crew is correct but I'm still handling the lighting and, you know, the lighting design for it. And then, you know, I'll talk to the DP and tell him what we're going to do. And um, we do these things so fast, Chris, you can't imagine. A lot of these shows are done in one day. We might load in in the morning and two, do two shows that night and we're out. So the amount of time to really finesse things is very minimal. Like we're on camera. The first time that we see anything on camera might be four o'clock. And then we have dinner at 530. So you know, it's not like we're going to go back and start rehanging lights. You know, we work with what's there and we try and do the best we can. You know, if we get a setup day, you know, that's great. But you know what? That's not necessarily given in these situations. If producers can get by and doing these things in one day, they will. Mm -hmm. So uh, the relationship with the DP is it's a partnership and they have to trust you and you have to trust them. And hopefully, you know, you end up with something that looks great. And stays yeah. It stays great through the post-production process, which is a whole other conversation, which we can have. <laughs> that is a whole nother podcast right there for sure. It is, especially in this 4K Netflix comedy world, because, you know, everybody wants to make movies, but they don't post it the way a movie posts it. And some shows suffer for that because they skip steps. So mm -hmm. they're using the best equipment but they don't necessarily end up with the best result because they skip steps in post-production because it's expensive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a whole new world where uh, even just a decade ago, once you sent your stuff to post, you kind of had an idea of what it was going to come out like, but now in the new world of digital editing, once you send your stuff away, you have no idea what's going to come out the other end. Well, not if you're making a movie. If you're making a movie, the DP goes in and he times it. He, he works with a he works with a color correct color correct artist, and they color correct things frame by frame if they need to, and they and they work things out. In this in this single cam, in, I'm sorry, in this 4K, um, well, certainly in the 4K comedy world, they don't bring the DPs into post. The DP, mm -hmm. you know, once we leave the once we leave the shoot. You know, it, it, it ends up being posted in a post house with an editor and a color correcting person who may not even, have, you know, they haven't seen what we've done and yeah. they're, make, they're making decisions based on their best judgment, but it may not necessarily be the decision that we, we meaning the lighting designer and the DP made in uh, while we were shooting. And, and I think that there's, um, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people about this in some shows. Um, the DPs are brought in, but they don't want to pay. It basically comes down to money. They just don't want to pay to bring the DP back. Um, and, you know, television is a compromise. It really is. Yeah. It's not, you know, we're not making movies. We're, we're doing something else, but it's not making movies. Occasionally we get close. 
But yeah, once you hand over your work, you give up a lot of your control at that point. Even if your name is on there, lighting designer or DP, you know, you don't know what's going to come out and your name is still going to be on there. But you know what? Before this 4K post world where, you know, we're recording basically raw footage or recording, you know, uh, these cameras, these cameras actually, these digital, these digital cameras are actually uh, uh, recording a raw image um, that then gets color corrected in post and they can, they have a lot of latitude to do this stuff in post, which is why they can totally paint these pictures in post. Prior to mm -hmm. this world with these 4K cameras, you know, we would be in a truck with a video operator and the video right. operator is painting the picture. And I would go back with the video operator and say, you know, this is a little too warm and can we soften it up a little bit? And we paint the picture and that's it. What you see is what you get. And right. Post if they if they set up their post if they set up their 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 tape machines properly or whatever their you know their hard drives if they set up the color bars properly if they do all that properly what we shot is exactly what you're going to see in this 4K world that's not necessarily the case mm -hmm. and uh, you know sometimes it's great and sometimes it's not so great so all you can do is hope for the best yeah cross your fingers. Or else, or else, the first time I did Chappelle, the first Chappelle show that we did on 4K, we used, actually used, because the producers that we did the show with had never done this 4K carry-in stuff package before, where we carry all the equipment and set it up on a, you know, show-by-show -show basis. You know, there are 4K TV trucks. They use them for sports and they use for other things. All Mobile Video has a very good 4K truck. You know, we... You know, I, I, I kind of insisted that we get one of the 4K trucks and I brought one of the best video operators on the East Coast down and we and we actually did it old school way. We shot it in 4K, but we actually recorded exactly what we were seeing onto the tape, which is not the way the film guys do it. But mm -mm. because of the limited experience at that point, I decided that this is what we should do. So we, and I call it, we burned it in. We actually recorded what we saw was, and... Uh, and that's what went through editing. And the Netflix people were not necessarily on board with that idea because they're used to the film style work because that's that's the world that they live in and that's the world that they've marketed. Right. Uh, but I felt that, that was this was the way to get the best result in this particular instance because of, of how new it was to everybody and uh, and that was the it was the right choice for that particular show. So it's possible. You know, it's not like you can't go yeah. on school in terms of how it gets recorded. It's just that's a choice. Yeah, it is amazing. We uh, we ripped through an hour very quickly. You're, uh, you have some very interesting uh, opinions, and I really enjoy talking to you. One of the one questions I really wanted to make sure that I asked you was if you're willing to speculate on what's going to happen after this isolation period. Do you think that you've been more or less completely vindicated here that uh, do you think that everybody has opened their eyes to say like, man, we got to record everything. No, I, I think it's all, it's all, you can, it all comes down to economics. You know, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see what happened. It'll, it'll, it, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to say, you know, we're just taking it day by day. You know, we just hope that production mm -hmm. comes roaring back, you know, how it's done. You know, I just, we just, I, I was just involved in the NBC fireworks. You know, I do, I do, a couple of good shows for NBC every year. And, you know, we just did the fireworks show for New York City. And most of all of it was pre-taped except for the hosts, which were live on the top of the Marriott Hotel overlooking Times Square. 
and to keep the number of people on site down because of this whole COVID stuff and NBC is taking it very seriously. You know, they actually set me up with a total home. They set me up at home. I actually never went down to the location. I had a lighting director on site and, you know, NBC set me up, set me up with a, uh, with a net, with a home network. I was able to see a multi-camera display on my television set and through an iPad, through IP addresses, I was able to have comm control to everybody I needed to speak with. And there were people in New York, there were people in Los Angeles, there were people out in Queens, and everybody was on this network doing this show. And you know what? Everybody loved it. You know, I was, I was home with my feet up, you know. You know, this is something we used to joke about 25 years ago when Amy Fiorentino was alive, you know, like, like, you know, being on the telephone and calling light cues from home. And you know what? That world is now exists because everybody is doing these at-home stuff. There's a whole technology and a whole industry that has grown up to do these multi-camera YouTube style events that we've been seeing. And they've gotten very good at it quickly. And I'm curious to see how that affects how we do production from this point forward. Because you know, producers are gonna say, well, do I really have to fly to New York? Can't you just hook me up at home? And the answer is yes. It's uh, yes. So it'll be interesting to see if production how production morphs based on the experiences we're having with this multi-camera IP address, multi-camera digital phenomenon that we've been perfecting over the course of the last three months. That is amazing in so many ways in, in technology, technological feats, in reduction of carbon footprint, in... Uh, yeah. The only thing you have to be careful about is that there, you know, like what we, what, you know, there, there was a two second delay. The director for the show, the director was in California. The director <laughs> was not in New York. The director was in California and his AD was in California. The tape operators, or not the tape operators, but the hard drive operators, and the people who were sending all the digital, you know, all, all the digital material, because everything was pre-recorded, they were all in Queens, New York City. And there was uh -huh. a two second delay two second delay on the video picture going out digitally between the coasts. There was a two second okay. delay. Not an audio delay. There was a two second video delay, but not an audio delay. <laughs> so the engineers delayed the audio to match the picture so that what we were seeing in New York and what they were seeing, what we were seeing in New York was, was a correct audio and video composite. However, it was two seconds behind what was really happening on the rooftop. <laughs> so the people in LA had to call their cues two seconds earlier, like all their tape rolls and everything. They had to anticipate two seconds because what they were seeing was two seconds delayed. It was making my head spin. And I was just, and I, so what they were doing is they were listening to the live audio because the live audio was correct, but the picture was two seconds delayed. So they would have to be calling their cues and whatever based on the audio track. Um, and I was just thinking about what if I had to call light cues, if I, if I was doing a musical performance and I had to call light cues, it would have meant that I would have had to just listen to the audio track because if I, otherwise I would have been two seconds delayed on every cue that I was calling off the screen. And mm -hmm. it was just, uh, it's a new world is all I'm saying. It's a new world. If it's That's like, amazing. If it starts taking off. It's a new world. I would imagine that fiber optic will uh, just slowly by slowly get that two seconds down to zero. Cause that's the way things are going. Uh, yeah, but 
I guess, but you know, there are, I'm not an engineer. They were working, right. In the course of the day, they were actually working exactly on how to minimize the delay and they were trying different things. I can't even tell you what they were doing. Yeah. I think when the day started, it was a five second delay and they got it down to two seconds. However, they were routing, you know, however they're routing this stuff digitally. It's all yeah. IP addresses. Everything's IP addresses. Mind boggling. Yeah, it's fascinating. So, you know, if you want a good job, you should get into networking. Uh, that's words from the wise right there. If anybody's listening, uh, being an still... IT guy is a good place to be. You know, these yeah. shows are so big that every there has to be an IT guy. You know, like the Super Bowl stuff, Bob Barnhart stuff. You know, you got to have an IT guy because these these networks are getting huge. Yep. Uh, that's, uh, my kids are eight years old and they're learning coding right now for just that exact reason because that's that's the future right there. Well, certainly in our business, it's going to just get yeah. Worse. It's, you know, the amount of stuff is just increasing. It's not decreasing. All right on, Alan. Thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, soaking up some of your words of wisdom here. This has been very, uh, very refreshing. I enjoy hearing that, that you're embracing the new and, uh, and, quite, and thriving quite, quite well. Yeah, I hope that people, are, you know, I'm not sure how many people are really focused in on what we're discussing, but, you know, this has been my career. And, you know, these are the things that, that I have spent my life focused on, no pun intended. Ah, but you chose quite well, Alan. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. I, I appreciate your contacting me. Thank you.